Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's episode, we'll be talking all about Annihilation, a new sci-fi action fantasy movie. Maybe we'll talk about the differences between the genres, uh, he said, with with some uh, question marks in his voice, uh, by novelist turned screenwriter turned writer-director Alex Garland that follows five female scientists led by a, a cellular biologist played by Natalie Portman who are sent by the military on an expedition into the heart of a place called the Shimmer, this kind of rapidly expanding radioactive bubble somewhere on the coast of, I think it's Florida, somewhere in the south, uh, that we don't know too much about. All we know is that whoever goes inside of it uh, does not come out, or at least does not come out uh, in the same way as when they went in. Uh, I'm very excited to welcome back to the show to help me with the review, Bruce Dittman. Uh, You last heard Bruce Oh boy, it may have been like two years ago that you were on to talk about Michael Mann's Thief and should have looked up the director, oh, yeah. director but whoever directed Beverly Hills Cop, we spoke about yeah. that movie as well uh, and the formative influence that those two movies had on Bruce's own development as a cinephile. Bruce, thanks for coming on the show. My it's a pleasure. pleasure to have Hello, you here. Uh, welcome, fellow film nerds. Yes, yeah. Um, okay, so Annihilation. Uh, I think that this is a movie that... You don't know, need to know too much about the plot. Maybe you don't want to know too much about the plot before you go in, but I'll give a bare-bones setup. So Natalie Portman plays Lena, a successful cellular biologist at Johns Hopkins University, uh, whose husband, played by Oscar Isaac, uh, is a some special ops military personnel sent into the heart of what turns out, out to be the Shimmer, this radioactive bubble somewhere on the southern coast, uh, he comes back quite different from the way that he left, and Portman becomes a part of this team of five female scientists uh, who are sent into the Shimmer to try to figure out just what is going on. The Shimmer is rapidly expanding. It seems to present some kind of threat to the southern half of the United States, but uh, that those kind of plot mechanics are a lot less important than what happens to these five scientists once they enter the Shimmer. I should say that now, we didn't talk about this before we got on, but this is probably going to be an episode with some spoilers on it. Maybe we will uh, we'll start out with the less spoilery stuff, and we'll just make sure to warn listeners. When, when, but but this is a movie with you know that really hinge, at least my understanding, I assume everyone's understanding, hinges upon unpacking the very mysterious things that happen toward the end of the movie. So be forewarned, there will be spoilers here. Uh, Bruce, before we before we got on air, I was talking about how I thought that the title, Annihilation, which I assume comes from the book that it was based on, it's based off of a pretty popular sci-fi book by Jeff Vandermeer, um, I thought it was not too appropriate of a title for what we ultimately wind up seeing. Uh, annihilation, to me, sounds a bit like, just in terms of how that word sounds, sounds a bit like the Terminator in terms of its hardness, its masculinity, its kind of definitive extermination of something or someone or, or maybe all of things or all of ones. Uh, and I found that the joy and the, you know, the provocation of this movie is how ambiguous it is. Uh, we are never quite certain what is happening. We're never quite certain who is being changed and how. And that ambiguity is what lets this movie be so much more than the bare bones plot uh, and get to that you know, key sci-fi question of what makes us human. So my first question to you is Annihilation. What, what in this movie is being annihilated and uh, does that title give a key to understanding this kind of puzzle of a sci-fi movie? Um, so, you know, I, I actually think there's a, a larger sort of um, body of work context for the title. So it works a couple ways. I, I don't know, but I, I assume like as you said that it's the title of the, the source material, um, there certainly is a bunch of annihilation going on in the movie. Um, there's annihilation of, uh, on smaller scale, you know, this person's life, um, the Lena, Lena is Lena's life, um, the potential annihilation of the planet. Um, certainly the annihilation of the, and then we get introduced to this sense of the annihilation of time of, of mm. our reference in the universe. Right. And then, and then in the same vein from, a from even a greater existential perspective what are you if one day you're a person guys i'm sorry we're gonna start the first sentence with a spoiler and then you're a tree Mm. are you not annihilated now i get the tone i have a theory on that too right because why is this annihilation not metamorphosis Mm. you know by way of example without forethought yeah i mean you get it uh i mean let's let's just dive into uh the be the most 
important and most explicitly articulated theme of the movie, which is one of constant change and the kind of destabilizing effect of recognizing that constant change doesn't, you know, evolution doesn't just take place uh, outside of our integral human bodies. It's not just happening somewhere in like the deep woods or the marshes of, of Florida or Louisiana or whichever Southern state uh, this movie takes place in. Uh, it's very much happening within ourselves and within the realm of the shimmer, this kind of mysterious radioactive bubble. Uh, it happens between people and between the living things with which they interact. Uh, I mean, I, I generally want to know your, uh, your kind of gut response to this movie, whether it was something you enjoyed, whether you thought that it was maybe more thematically provocative than a successful movie, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe we'll, we'll get into that through its its exploration of change. I mean, do you, do you feel like this movie had something interesting to say about how how we experience change in the world? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it did. I think, first, just to go back to the, the, the one point about Annihilation as a title, one thing I don't want to miss out Annihilation, like you said, Terminator, actually. Um, uh, The title Annihilation is very much the title of an alien invasion story, of an alien movie, sci-fi horror movie. And I'd like to argue that at its core, that this is what the director is doing. And as companion piece, which we can talk about in a minute, to Ex Machina. But in general, as a film, um, I liked it. I thought a lot of it was intensely cool. Um, it didn't, it, it, it was not as tidy as Ex Machina. Um, there were a lot of interesting things, or there, I shouldn't say a lot, there were a number of inter- interesting things I wish that I had learned more about that were just left alone. For example, the time issue. I love that losing time part of it. And it happened in their first interaction. It's extremely destabilizing. It's terrorizing. Um, you know, Here's an example. Again, talk about annihilation. What are you if you don't know? What are we as, as beings, right? We sleep, we eat, we, we eliminate, we fornicate, right? So we've got, a, we've got uh, a woman without her partner there, so she's not going to re- reproduce, right? Yeah, specifically about her, not in general, in society. But she, she can't reproduce, so that's been taken from her. Her partner has been taken from her, right? And then her ability to sleep has been taken from her. I had flashes of memento, Hmm. You know, where sort of there's this amnesiac, amnesiac sort of quality to the movie where every day they wake up, they don't know if they've been there for a month or a day. And there is a, a, mystery, a central mystery that the, the movie provides at the start, which is what happened to the husband inside the shimmer, right? right? This, you know, if our, Natalie Portman's character it plays at least to start a bit of a detective in that she is going to the heart of the occurrence that may have transformed him and trying to figure out to explain both to the world around her, but most importantly to herself, you know, what, what changed this person that she so knew and and loved? I think that maybe right. what was not... Um, I think you're right. This movie is a lot less tidy than Ex Machina, uh, and that's Alex Garland's 2014 directorial, directorial debut, uh, which is really, you know, we're talking about David Mamet chamber pieces earlier. That's just mm-hmm. three characters played by Oscar Isaac, Donald Gleason, and Alicia Vikander uh, trapped in this uh, kind of beautiful, out-of-this-world, secluded kind of home integrated into i forget somewhere in maybe scandinavia or something it's yeah. you know it's a it's a uh, incredibly uh, seclusive and elite environment uh, in which the director of some futuristic tech company presents one of his employees with his latest ai's latest artificial intelligence and the movie goes on to explore uh you know when you know you know for a fact that you're not talking to a human uh what does that uh what does that machine have to do in order to convince you at a, maybe a subconscious level uh that they are indeed equal uh you know worthy of empathy and love and sexual attraction uh and and pity and stuff like that yeah this movie is not as tidy certainly uh both in terms of the characters dialogue but i i think that the big problem for me in terms of actually relating to anyone in Annihilation. And this is a movie that I really enjoy. I thought it was one of the best sci-fi movies I've seen in recent years. Everyone operates with a very distinct remove from the story and from themselves, from their own emotional attachment to the world. Part of it is the trauma of having lost, you know, someone, of of having gone into the heart of the shimmer. But there's no Oscar Isaac's Nathan from Ex Machina, right? There's no egomaniacal, big, bombastic, absolutely confident in every... And then also the Donnell Gleason, this kind of meek but equally kind of confident in his own abilities as a person in his own humanity. Everyone here from the very start, even before they go into the shimmer is a little like uncertain of themselves as well. At least Natalie Portman's character, right? Mm. She's been thrown into this flux from her husband's loss. And I think that 
I don't know. The the characters is not what won me over about this movie. Imagine when you think about the characters, though, because I'll tell you what I love about it. And what I love about it isn't that it was tidy because it wasn't. Um, and isn't that it was terrifying. Although I don't like scary stuff. By the way, I watch this movie for you because I adore you, but I hate scary stuff. Thank you. Okay? Um, and I was scared and I was glad they weren't monsters per se, um, which is nothing you could argue about for an hour. But but um, uh, what I love about this movie and what I love about Ex Machina, in addition to it's an ex- it's just you know pretty perfect, is um, the director's voice in there. So to go back for a second, imagine take those characters, which I agree were poorly formed, I think, or or poorly examined, like the time issue. The time issue is so interesting, mm-hmm. and then just forgotten about. Right. Really, um, it's part of it's baked into the story. But imagine how much scarier that experience would have been for the main characters if every time we encountered them again in the new day, they had no idea how long they'd been there. Yeah. Right? Food's gone. Sort of, food. a, I mean, it's what Blair Witch Project is, right? Yeah, right <laughs> Completely right. disorients so, us by, you know, the equivalent of a jump cut, throwing us, yes. um, you know, an indeterminate amount of time future that the characters know. So now's a perfect time since you said that to bring this up about Blair Witch, because there's a Blair Witch shot. There's the, oh my God, I'm so scared, snot bubble shot. <laughs> And, and I'll tell you something about this director, which even if he denied it to my face, I would call him a liar, is that this guy isn't just a cineast, he's a, he's a movie fan. And he, at a level probably like close to Tarantino, is putting other movie references in here. He's not alluding to things. He's not, it's not even homage. He's jamming them in there. I'd love to talk about them with you because it made it super fun for me. So, But I hadn't thought about the title to go back to what we started talking about which is Annihilation, which is the name of a Michael Bay alien invasion movie, right? Mm-hmm. But imagine that in, um, you know, in the context of someone who wants to make movies about aliens, okay? Ex Machina is a movie about aliens, and Annihilation is a movie about aliens. Um, in, certain, Ma- in terms of outside intruders into a well, relatively self-sufficient... So the, when I watched Ex Machina... Um, I had this this freak out in the middle of it because and I paused it every round, I paused it around it. Spoiler alert. For Ex Machina? For Ex Machina. It's Go been for long it. Enough. Four years old. Okay. When the robot puts skin on for the first time, there is a music motif that is third encounters, a close encounters of the third kind. It's in there. You know the famous chords from Close Encounters? It's in there. Hmm. And that's because she went from being a robot to being an alien. Hmm. An actual an alien. Um, and there's a larger theme here too, but so this is an alien. That is a movie about an alien. Okay. Um, it's, it's more expertly made, but, the, but that's what it is. This is also literally annihilation is literally a movie about an alien, right? There's a presumably a meteorite, something crashes into from, from right. outer space. And I think as the climax of the movie, which we haven't gotten to yet, but we will, I think quite does explicitly lay out that there is some sort of right. outside extraterrestrial presence that has made its way. Not only does it do that. Right, um, it it does it in another referential way. Where um, in some reviews, I heard them sort of making fun of the or having fun with the um, pantomime scene, right? Which is okay. But have you seen the Abyss? No. Okay, <sighs> the there. Abyss, which is the uh, Bruckheimer right movie where he invented the liquid steel that they use in T two. Okay, they go to the bottom of the ocean. That's a movie about an alien movie about Earth about the bottom of the ocean being outer space and they encounter intelligent beings that are water-based and they mimic there's this liquid metal scene where they have an interaction where they're i don't know if it's andy mcdowell's face whoever's face it was i can't remember and it mimics it that's uh, has to be a reference has to be a reference to the abyss you know i actually when you mentioned that in the context of at least the um the animation or the technology that that is used in something in a movie like T2 where these animatronic forms are kind of on the fly creating a human body for themselves to mimic those around them. Yes, very much in the climax of the movie. I'm not quite uh, ready to get to the climax of this one yet because yes, I feel like we're going to need we can get there. quite quite a but, bit there. But but just to, to finish the thought about why this is fun. So in Ex Machina, there's that amazing Close Encounters of the Third Kind motif that happens that Prove to me, you know, that, that that may solidify that this is a movie about aliens, not about robots, mm. other intelligence. But um, but there are also these. I have to I have to talk to you about this. There are amazing movie in po- popular movie references in them. 
so like uh, Ex Machina, without, I'll only do one more for Ex Machina, when they're flying over, like it's the Pacific Northwest or it's Scandinavia or whatever it is, but these amazing mountains and trees, there's Apocalypse Now is in the music. You can hear Wagner in the music. So it's a helicopter ride and they're storming. And see the it. shadow of the yeah, helicopter yeah, it's, over the trees. It's, yeah. it's not an exact shot, but it's there. So um, in, in Annihilation, one, we've got the title, which I think is a joke. Not a joke joke, but a wink joke, okay? Or a setup, frankly. Um, or... Right, so uh, and pain. I'm painfully kind of uttered by a character in the climax of the movie. It's oh, a, it's you but, know someone whenever when yeah. someone shouts the title of the movie yeah, that, in the climax. A it's, I, it's definitely a, a popcorn sci-fi trope. Right. But I but there are a bunch of tropes in it, and you don't want to talk about the finale yet. But I have one, an amazing one for okay. that. That is so ham-handed. It has to be on purpose. You know, I mean, it has to be to take you out of the navel gazing and put you back in the movie hmm. in, in, in a movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's the abyss. Oh, here's a great one that I, that I just saw today when I was rewatching the trailer, when all the women are walking towards the abyss, we'll go back to the beginning. It's, it's a ghostbuster shot hmm. with their backpacks on. It's a hundred percent the ghostbuster yeah. shot. You know, I actually, so this, yes, this movie is definitely one for movie fans. Cause I, uh, you're right. You've already identified three or four different movies. Uh, I think that this one is very indebted to, uh, Tarkovsky's film Solaris and Stalker, as yes. well as Kubrick's 2001, which we will get to again right. with the climax. But you know, in that sequence, uh, which you just described, the Ghostbuster sequence, if you will, of these, you know, this team of uh, kind of misfit scientists, each one bruised in their own ways, which may not be, you know, the most convincing articulation of what differentiates the characters. I was actually thinking of Michael Bay's Armageddon. <laughs> Armageddon, <laughs> and, and these, you know, going, you know, walking in this kind of heroic, uh, larger than life. I'm about to tackle, you know, a meteorite right. that is. Yes. going to destroy the world uh the the heroism that we have come to associate that type of bold walking to the right. no, unknown but i feel like is i agree with you 100 but and I, and I know fair. i agree with you about solaris but I, but aside from the thematics i mean the actual shot is in i would i would buy as popcorny as 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 a bay movie or you know as an armageddon or as any of the other comet movies and but it it's it's so he is such a beautiful visual sense that some of these shots have to be i mean the, again these are tarantino level hmm. replications of scenarios so let so i think that we should go into the shimmer soon but let me uh i think that the transition from the quote-unquote real familiar world to the mysterious world of the shimmer was not as jarring for me as perhaps it was uh for you or definitely for these characters uh in that garland has a way of kind of visually prefiguring whatever destabilizing elements we're about to see in the heart of this movie in those opening sequences. And I'll just identify one image that kind of resonated with me as much as anything else in the movie, which is when Natalie Portman's character, Alina, again, she's a cellular biologist. I don't know if the movie ever convincingly portrays any of these people as scientists. I mean, uh, but she is traumatized by the loss of her husband. Uh, she is repainting the upstairs bedroom in her home. Uh, the husband quite mysteriously in a, a sequence in which I think we as viewers are accustomed to think is a dream. In, in fact, turns out to be a reality. Some figure of her husband reemerges. But the sequence that, that sticks in my mind is the next one in the kitchen where Oscar Isaac's husband, not saying a word, sitting at the kitchen table, his hands you know, and elbows resting on the table, Everything looks, you know, fine, familiar, maybe a little dark and foreboding, but his hands are behind a glass of water. They're her hands. Well, they're, it's first Oscar Isaac's yes. hands and then both of their I hands. I in then, love with that So shot. first we see, you know, this man otherwise looks fine. You know, Oscar, he's, he's handsome. His hair slicked back. He looks, you know, maybe a little gaunt, but he's, he's here. But we look at those hands behind the water and we see something both terrifyingly unusual but also it's a glass of water it's the most familiar familiar thing in the world but the way that his his body is transformed by this very mundane presence is wonderful and then we have natalie portman's character sit at the table with him and what does she do she holds his hands and then both hands are behind the water if this movie portends great doom and destruction for mankind as a whole it does have some kind of, you know, element of hope for this couple. At that's the so end. funny. I had a different take. And on I think it. that's yeah. it's prefigured at that moment where they're joining hands and changing together. See, I, my read on that, and I thought that the movie was worth it just for that. Like, there's that great story about, I think Spielberg told about Hitchcock when asked how he would think it was, although it makes more sense for it to be someone else, but I, I, my, my recollection of Spielberg and Hitchcock saying, how would you make a movie about Titanic? And famously said, I would show. You're, you know, the, this, the setting is the captain's quarters. 
and it's his desk. Those maritime desks with the ridges and the cup holes and everything. There's a glass of scotch on the on the counter, and he said I would slowly show the level of the scotch tilt. Hmm. You know, like that perfect shot, that genius. I thought the same thing, within reason, about that. But a totally different take on it because what you're seeing with your eye, without a lens, is is the husband. What you're seeing with the lens is a perversion or mutation of the husband. So when she interacts with him, she is mutating. Mm. Um, so there, it, it's a, yeah, it's also visually, uh, it, it's it also um, sort of predicts the later a fairly gruesome shot um, visually. Right, and yeah. right, and what you're uh, well, first let me say you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Brain, and I'm talking with New Haven's own Bruce Dittman about Annihilation, uh, the latest kind of mind-bending sci-fi action flick from writer-director Alex Garland uh, about a group of scientists who go on an expedition into the mysterious The Shimmer, where their bodies uh, begin to share characteristics with, uh, with different life forms that uh, they may or may not have thought they could share characteristics with. Um, it's the... Just to wrap up that sequence with the the water. Oh, and I'm going to ask you to get a little bit closer to the moment. Uh, the uh, it's the subtlety of it that that Garland is able to so clearly define this important symbol of transformation without you know very uh, um, you know extravagantly drawing our attention. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just something sitting on the table, and that is what I think distinguishes his sci-fi distinguishes something like Ex Machina or even, you know, 28 Days Later, like a zombie movie. It's it's these little details that he is able to call our attention to, however subtly, that lets us know that this is a world that is on the brink of absolute destabilization. But So try to hold on to whatever's familiar while you can. Let's go into The Shimmer. This is the bulk of the movie. This is this, uh, I don't know if radioactive bubble is the appropriate adjective to describe it, but the important word is refract. I understand right. from yes. the movie, right? So uh, for someone like me who had to look up the definition of the word refract after seeing this movie, uh, if you don't remember your ninth grade physics class, mm. is that this is uh, the phenomenon of, uh, I think, just light changing direction. By the way, you know what happens to light when it goes through a glass of water? Does it refract? It refracts. That's what you're seeing is refraction. With so the you fingers. don't even need the, yeah. the dictionary. You just need to look at that image of the water glass. So we're thrown into this environment, right? The character's don't know where they are. They don't know how they got to the specific location in the shimmer. They know that they entered there willingly, but any form of uh, kind of independence and self-control that they had going in is immediately lost upon uh, upon their arrival there. Uh, I feel like there's something both very satisfying and provocative and also something kind of incohate about the shimmer narrative, that like hour in the middle of the movie. It kind of felt to me like a, a series of uh, kind of autonomous scenes that are kind of haphazardly strung together to show the danger of the environment in which they live, as opposed to something like the world of our Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker, which is so, it's presented as both a coherent whole that consists of these individual kind of levels with that, that provoke a certain amount of anxiety and fear and change and confidence. But you always understand that there's like this big picture that you exist in. I never quite felt like I could map out the shimmer. Maybe that's part of the point, but I, I felt like the, the individual scenes function a little bit too independently but what happened in the individual scenes? I, I really dug. So I don't know. Was there was there a map of the Shimmer that you could draw in your mind, or was it all about what there happens were landmarks. in between? There were landmarks. To me, th there was you know in, uh, plenty of Jurassic Park in it, without a doubt. Well, also what you were describing with the tilt of the water and what we're talking about with the water glass here. I mean, that's done in Jurassic Park, right? With the the, the shaking, the shaking, which of is the water. why he did that. That's now I have context yeah. that that's where it came from. By the way, that's why I was thinking Spielberg, right? So um, the um, uh, yeah, I mean. As far as a map, you know, they go in, they're in North Florida, they, you know that there's a coast, so you've got one edge, at least one edge, uh, you know there's a lighthouse there. Um, no, they didn't do a particularly good job of it. Now, is it sort of a, a geographic MacGuffin, you know, the shimmer, which frankly, you know, I'm sure it comes from the book, it's not that scary and or compelling a name. Um, I liked it. Yeah, you liked it? Okay. Um, but, um, you know, I feel like it has like a quivering quality to it that I thought it does, and it's also vision. It's about light. I mean, yeah. it's about light. And, and this is a gorgeously, you know, visual movie yeah. in terms of the kind of 
kaleidoscopic rainbow right. of colors that were constantly presented within the shimmer. But I'll let you continue. Yeah, no, I, I mean, within the shimmer itself, you know, what I expected to see, what I sort of anticipated from every scene and sometimes often got was the combination of wonder and terror, right? Which is sort of Jurassic Park. And But in, in is this in that they are... Um, they are in this place that is beautiful and mysterious and then you discover dangerous and deadly also magic kind of felt also magic which i'm okay with if you pursued it i don't feel like they sufficiently did um so you know like if we live in a world i mean we have to say generally what's happening is they go in and not only do they know where they are at least at the beginning they don't know when they are right and ultimately they don't know what they are Right, and I think that's annihilation. So that annihilation of certainty of self, yeah, right, um, of certainty and and of self definition in the end of of all truly of self and in in at least for one of the characters literally of self um, in in a fairly beautiful um, uh, terror that happens to one of the characters, although bizarrely discovered not by the cellular biologist, not figured out by her, right? I mean, there's. They're talking about genetics and the the genes in your body that determine your shape and how why humans look like humans and why daffodils look like daffodils doesn't come from the cellular biologist for some reason. Um, oh, I, I I thought we were talking about the bear sequence first. No, but we're not. Okay, love the bear sequence. Yes. Um, no, I'm right. Talking... Well, I think that gets to how you know each of these. Ki- Have you seen the movie Stalker? No. Uh, okay. Well, it's very similar press uh, uh, setup. Uh, kind of three very kind of arch typical an intellectual a scientist and this kind of roving kind of marauding tour guide uh venture into this mysterious kind of radioactive zone uh where each is you know they're told that if they get to one room in this derelict building they'll be able to realize their deepest and innermost and most subconscious of desires and so the the characters are set up as you know these big kind of uh you know high concept archetypes um mm-hmm. you know intellectual scientists stuff like that right um but then over the course of the movie we understand that these are in fact very individual very uh you know vulnerable and people with very specific human needs here in this movie you know we get that someone is has a drug abuse problem and someone's lost their husband and someone you know right. uh, is has cancer but uh, i felt like the character you know the the characters weren't properly differentiated enough to make these the merging quite as powerful i thought as as a could be right it's hard to really care if someone loses their self if you didn't know they were right and i i don't know if that's just a function of the form um but mm-hmm. but yeah no it wasn't totally successful in that way mm-hmm. you know and if you look at alien horror movies again to go back to the beginning that he was that he makes alien horror movies um which incidentally zombies are alien horror movies um i mean they're horror movies but they're others you know they're not literally from outer space but um uh they uh i'm talking about 28 days but they um uh should i don't oh i know yeah i mean think about alien right and think about the abyss if our listeners have heard the abyss what do you have you have the scientist the sneaky brave scientist right somehow knows how to shoot a gun or fight an alien if you're sigourney weaver right you have got the um, militaristic gung-ho knucklehead whatever who you know michael bean or whoever whoever plays that role in whatever decade you're watching right right you've got the sensitive techie um you've got the ship's doctor Right. We have all of these things. Right. So, right. you know, um, I love that. These I'm are not, roles that we're familiar with. Yeah, these right? are sci-fi um, tropes. Right. Or these are alien movies. Sure. Tropes. And no. also, I think that's why, you know, Armageddon is not an outrageous parallel for this movie, too. In that, you know, there's a kind of ragtag team, yeah. each with their own specialty, thrown in here to try to accomplish yeah. it together. And but a, they don't even get a chance to try to work together, right? Because immediately they, they are <laughs> thrown into... Uh, well, can can we... I, there's such an, It's such an important theme. I want to maybe start heading to it now. Yeah. But it's this... Um, this loss of uh, kind of the integrity of the individual. Uh, and again, talk about the details that Garland works with in the, I don't know, it's kind of structurally a little bit difficult to articulate, but they're kind of flashbacks within flashbacks. But Natalie Portman's character winds up having an affair of sorts with a colleague yeah. that we don't see really anything of except one image that I think is quite resonant, which are just the notches of her spine as she's having sex yes. uh, with this this colleague. And there's something about the physicality of that image, the notion that there's something just beneath the skin that she thinks kind of makes her her, but in fact she has no control over, that I feel like lends a certain aura of like, uh-oh, I don't quite, I don't really understand what's well, inside my body. There's a bunch about that, and, I, and I'll, allow me to introduce my unifying theory. Um, that Perfect. sex scene uh, was remarkable for its, well, 
at least in large part for its total unsexiness. Yeah. And I don't necessarily want to blame Natalie Portman for that. Um, here's well, these my, are characters very removed right. from their... Well, and I love what you said about the spine, right? Because mm-hmm. you, what you're seeing is the girding under the surface of a machine, yeah. right? So here is my theory for both movies. I see both of these movies. I see Ex Machina in this, in this movie. I see them as companions, okay? Ex Machina talks about the prison of technology, right? And spoiler alert, guys, I won't go to specifics, but in the end of that movie, it literally becomes a prison of technology, mm. Okay. This movie is about the prison of biology, right? Mm-hmm. And what I liked about that sex scene, which I actually thought was very sophisticated, I didn't understand where it came from. I didn't, I didn't get it entirely. I didn't like it with the character. But what's smart about that is, there's, there's, we could talk about the prison of biology in this movie for hours, but that it was particularly astute because she didn't appear to even want to be there. Yeah. And she missed her husband, but she's having sex with a married man. She is a prisoner her own biology her own sexuality or desires she is somewhat it, it appears unwitting she's consensual you know she's consenting but she is not doing something she does not appear to be doing something she wants to be doing yeah that's a really interesting take and i think that in the context you know we never we get so little of the lead up to that affair that it's difficult to justify that based on plot or what the character say but i think you're totally right thematically in terms of you know she's not constantly expressing some kind of need to um uh to the uh, indulge but to right partake in her sexuality but this is if anything we understand a way of trying to um achieve some kind of closure with the well, loss of her husband but what we get is anything but closure because you're right this is not a satisfying uh Again, closing development for her. It's just one more instance of her body kind of exerting more control yeah. over her destiny than yeah, over than her, her will. And um, yeah, she, you know, it's I, I. I Whereas Ex know, Machina is almost the exact opposite in that yes, it's exploring the difference in bodies between humans and machines. But what what connects humans and machines? What blurs that boundary is their consciousness, is their like emotional vulnerability and their empathy, or at least how much they can trick people into thinking that they feel empathetic. Well, until it doesn't. You know, um, you know, one of my favorite movies just for the theme. I actually think it's a, tr- I think it's a virtuoso, virtuoso performances. Um, I, is uh, I am Legend, um, which no one gives Will Smith any credit for. Really, it is a one actor movie. Hmm. You know, I'll give half a credit to that dog. You know, because <laughs> I love that dog. But he, you know, it's a, it's a nearly a monologue for the. I mean, it's tremendous. Mm-hmm. But the theme is: at what point do you become the monster? And at what point in Ex Machina? Do they become the monster? Yeah. Um, and but but to go back to the idea of a prison of biology, which becomes literal, um, in in this it is literal. That's the shimmer has them captured, um, and um, and uh, yeah. So um, one of the characters has cancer, as we mentioned. She's a prisoner to her biology. Play, and I love Jennifer Jason Lee's yeah. performance in this. But it's you? not, yeah. I mean, she doesn't have the biggest role. Natalie Portman is definitely the focal point here. Sure. But as far as other characters in that expeditionary group, mm-hmm. uh, there's like a steeliness to Jennifer Jason Lee's performance that I thought was really, I don't know, really uh, opaque in I love a her. provocative way. She made choices, and I respect yeah. that. Times I was like, what's going on? Uh, but but cool like cool i don't mind let's get weird like uh, you know it's cool like she chose to never wear any makeup whatsoever and you know do which is fine mm-hmm. um you know uh she chose to kind of deadpan not a lot of modulation not a lot voice. of modulation yeah. yeah um and she has not frankly from any other character there's not a lot no either. right but for her it felt like a choice yeah <laughs> but think about it. one one has cancer she's a prisoner to your biology one is an addict prisoner to the biology you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I love that. Yeah. Like, again, I'll forgive many of the flaws in this movie because I, I, what I think this director's doing, I find exciting. And let's, I, I think, again, another image that resonates with me, you know, a week and a half after I saw it is what is the like leitmotif of this movie, if you will? It's cells under a microscope uh, dividing. Right. Uh, first in black and white, if I remember the development correctly, we first see it in black and white in the context of Portman's biology class, and then it becomes this like vibrant incandescent color as as uh, the division becomes more and more out of control. But it reminded me of like very early kind of experimental animation films from like the twenties, thirties, and forties by guys like Oscar Fischinger, where you have you know these um, 
abstract uh, kind of visual, almost musical motifs where they, they're creating a rhythm the way that these things are yeah. dividing, right? And it kind of sets the pace for, you know, there's not a lot of expression on any of these women's faces, but the way that we see the uncontrolled expansion of what may be happening inside of them, I thought was such a cool way of showing how they may be cool and steely on the outside, but in fact, there's a division happening inside that they have no control over and it terrifies them. Yeah, no, and the division isn't is is isn't partial of their biology. It's in, it's in totality of their biology. It's a division from their free will and their biology. The, you know, if you told me that Garland loved Donald Duck and Math Magic Land, which is one of my favorite early Disney's, I'd believe it because it has that same. To your point, which is a good one, has that same kind of expansive, um, almost fractal. I mean, it would be fractal in this case because they with the mold and the the growth, but like loose kind of uh beauty around it definitely and i love how i mean he he sticks with it it's, we don't just see that image once right yeah. we see it three four five times over the course of the movie where he stops sticking with it is in the finale we should well all right so we don't um, have to get there yet well no i think that we should uh get there because i think that's a treasure but i'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the bear let's talk because about the, the monster bear, right, because this is probably the um the climax of the shimmer sequence if i'm taking maybe the last third of the movie as maybe the coastal shimmer, maybe the heart of the shimmer, the climax of the, of the heart of the shimmer. Coastal shimmer, we had a Lake Placid monster. Right. <laughs> yes, yeah. definitely. Um, but here, so, you know, these characters recognize that there's some kind of refraction happening inside of their bodies. These are spoilers, by the way. We're getting to the spoiler territory of the episode. Uh, they begin to spontaneously share characteristics, both between the humans in the group and also with the other life forms in this uh, um, this kind of marshy uh, ecological realm that they're in. And at one point, one of the characters, mauled by bear, a pretty terrifying sequence. I thought the kind of closest to the horror element. It's the darkest sequence in the movie. It's the, one of the few sequences that take place at night. Usually this movie is quite a colorful one. Um, and we see a, a bear that bears a a certain kind of vocal similarity to its latest victim it's kind of taken on the vocal cords and really the cries for help of the woman that's just small it's partly a very kind of alien-esque in terms of like capital a like ridley scott's alien-esque kind of trickery that this this otherworldly life form is using to convince these characters that it is something that it is not but it's also just this horrifying body dysmorphic image that yeah, so the, well, a couple it's things. Great. One is, is um, uh, I mean, there's an alien shot in that too, where the head is coming by. There, they're staying very still. Yeah, teeth, yeah, right? yeah. And there's teeth, and there's sort of like the burster or whatever the the mouth and the mouth. Definitely. There's a whole thing. Yeah. Um, but I, let me say first of all, again, I don't like scary movies. Me too. Yeah. But, I, well, I love them, but I watch with my eyes closed, yeah, so I, I miss about sixty. I can't even do that. Um, but these, I was able to palette this one because it was based in biology. As crazy as that sounds, um. I thought this was an amazing monster. Um, so again, this is a version of a bear that has also an exoskeleton face um, that can mimic its prey, right? It, it, but it's a mimic, or I should say it's a parrot. Hmm. So what I liked about this is that it was all organic. And I want to talk about that too. The, but this monster, these monsters were mutations, but they weren't magic. Interestingly, I was doing a little bit of research before this. I know you do research. Is that this is a monster that it's from? Well, it's from ancient history. Uh, Pliny the Elder, or someone else talked about it. It has a name, hmm. and it was part bear, part lion, and it could mimic human voice. But I thought that was terrifying and great. And by the way, a logical or a possible adaptation mutation that could happen in nature. Hmm. Right. Sure. I mean, there's so especially you know there's so many uh, creatures that that disguise themselves, that imitate, you know, larger predators so yeah. as to ward off, you know, smaller predators. Right. That that type of mimicry is something that I think is very familiar to anyone who is aware of like biology yeah. around them. Um, I think what's, you know, so terrifying about this is uh one, of course, hearing the cries for help of, of this woman in the voice of this bear. But you're right. I mean, the way that you described it's again not too dissimilar to Jurassic Park, the way that we're introduced to this terrifying toothy figure right. leaning its head in. Uh, if only, right, if only the characters don't move or yeah, quiet don't enough, move they and there's won't, a big uh, snorting sound. But the other right. thing is, like, you know, again, what's a voice? What does it mean? Yeah. You know, why? You know, it's interesting. Um, but she doesn't, the, it's key that the voice doesn't say anything, right? It's more of like a, 
uh, like it's this animalistic kind of screech, right? Well, it's, it's probably the noise that the person made right before they died. But it's bringing that person kind of down to an animalistic level true, as opposed true, to true, using true. a human vocabulary. To... Well, because an animal doesn't care about language. A parrot doesn't care about words or verbs. What? That, yeah. <laughs> they care about sounds. They just yeah. happen to sound like our stuff, which is to say, you know, what's primacy, right? In nature, like, what does it matter? What noises we're making out of our mouths? Um, the, uh, yeah. So, in the, you know... Um, I think that that kind of theme deals with some, in an interesting way, deals with some egomania or human egomania that that is addressed very quickly in the brutality of nature and the, like, there's a scene where a person is posthumously consumed, potentially posthumously consumed by mold, which to us seems sort of like a very shameful way to go. But why? You know what I mean? Why? What's so great about us versus mold? To this, in the shimmer, it's all organic. To, to talk about uh, organics for a minute, I thought this was very good. I loved it. Obviously, I had my ears open the whole time for music. So I thought Ex Machina had a lot of like had a lot of cookies, like a lot, a lot of hidden stuff in there in the music. And surprisingly, um, you know, this is Crosby, Stills, and Nash song, right? Helplessly hope. Yeah, right. Wh- which which was... is quite uh, which was quite jarring for me. I I really dug it, but Ex Machina is a movie of you know, what we expect, or a soundtrack of what we right. expect from sci-fi movies. Very, very electronic, a lot of beeps and boops, uh, but also, you know, a, a foreboding kind of mechanistic thing. Here, right. it's all... But Tom, this is a movie about the prison of biology. of biology. So these are these are wooden <laughs> instruments and human voices in harmony. Mm-hmm. So what happens in this movie is what is harmonious. Mm-hmm. You know, is it more harmonious that there's this other world becoming potentially becoming the majority world where trees are made out of crystals and people look like trees but they're in harmony you know they're built to their own structure so you know i love the idea of taking the most famous or one of the most famous groups in american history that for their harmony and making them sort of thematically thing with acoustic music that's a great reading yeah, that's, that's because why I love it, this guy. it was right. I mean, it really the soundtrack was something that I struggled with on watching it because I thought this is not the music of a sci-fi movie, right? <laughs> this right. is this is one of a, a I don't know, like a country romance or something. Well, this is what perfect harmony sounds like on this side of the shimmer. Yeah, what does it sound like on the other side? It's great. Reading. All right, it's uh, it's definitely spoiler time. So spoiler listener, time. we're we're gonna get to the climax of the movie. Uh, first, I'll say uh, one more time that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP. Uh, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, uh, and I'm talking with Bruce Dittman about Alex Garland's new sci-fi action movie, uh, Annihilation. So, by the end of this movie, all the kind of the excess, the characters have been whittled away, and we are left with, well, really two, but this is kind of Natalie Portman's climax, um, where she gets to the shoreline, she finds the lighthouse, a pretty beautiful sequence, all the crystal trees mm-hmm. on, on the beach, um, but let's let's get inside of the lighthouse and maybe what, what happens there. This is probably an appropriate time to start talking about the influences of movies like 2001 as well, especially that final sequence of, uh, you know, the space exploration tunneling down into the most kind of personal, individual, psychedelic, uh, kind yeah. of subjective going within as opposed to exploring the the furthest ventures of what's, of what's without. Um, there's definitely a lot of that here, but also there's this absolutely beautiful ballet sequence, uh, you know, between Natalie Portman and something that's trying to be Natalie Portman. So what did you, you think of it. this incredibly satisfying climax? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't share your opinion. <laughs> First... <laughs> First, again, let me reframe what you said. I, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I, I I see the uh, the space odyssey. Um, I uh, and obviously that's a, a huge influence there. I also agree on the psychedelica. The, like it was, it was literally fractal and it was psychedelic. Mm-hmm. But again, which is much more sort of um, an organic kind of expression. I think the colors are the colors. expressed that they're very bright. Yeah, and they were on back screens, on themselves, yeah. and it was this whole sort of like big DMT vibe. But I'll tell you that I don't think it was a tunnel. I think it's a navel, okay, or a vagina. Um, but I think it's I, I. To me, if you look at it visually, you know, we think about navel being, you know, the sort of source of or or your link to hmm. mother. Um, you know, to me, it was. You know, we were speculating whether or not it was a, a crab hole at that point. We didn't know what monsters, didn't, you know, um, you know, or butthole. But um, but it, to me, I really un, it, to frame it in my kind of construct, I think it's a navel. Um, but I did not like the ballet 
at the end. I did not like... I feel like the end of this movie, and I get it, and I'm cool with it, because this guy loves movies, okay? But I feel like he packed in a couple things he really wanted to do, and I'm cool with it. Um, but, for example, why is, why is her other made of metal? Where's the other metal? I mean, metal's in nature, I understand that. But where's the other metal? Why, if all things are nothing, right? If all things are atoms, then why not just make a whole nother her? Why not just be flesh? Wait, well, that is the trajectory of that being, right? The, but why start as metal then? Because yeah, I mean, well, I I don't think that I have an adequate explanation for the material makeup of that being when we first encounter it. I think that what's much more telling about its interactions with Portman's character is that exact ballet sequence that that we've been referencing, which is one where this figure learns how to be human, how to, in the same way that Ex Machina is, you know, Alicia Vikander's character is learning how do you satisfactorily approximate humanity so that you can convince other people around you that you are indeed one of them. This figure is learn, and how does this figure learn what to do? Um, by the way that she moves. This is yeah. all about, and I mean, I this movie, that sequence communicates so beautifully to me how how expressive you know, it's kind of what ballet does, but how expressive movement can can be. We have the the terror, the fear, the violence, the trying to flee, the confidence. Um, everything is encapsulated in about thirty seconds of her uh, kind of mirror image with uh, mirror image. I don't know, dancing and fleeing from this figure. I thought that trying to, I mean, how do we imitate? We look at you know, we can't get inside the minds of other people. All we can do is look at how they're acting, and I feel like for this figure that's able to create, kind of embody itself, it, you know, to imitate something else, it first has to see, how does this thing act? How does I, it move? I understand that. I, I mean, first of all, let me correct myself. I think earlier, actually, And there are lots said, of beeps and boops, too. Yeah, there are, at that point, there are beeps and boops. Um, I, I think I said Bruckheimer earlier. I meant James Cameron. Right, it's Cameron. Yeah. Cameron. Um, but, um, I mean, Bruckheimer maybe produced? I don't know. Yeah, some. <laughs> but, the, but Cameron, um, you know, I think it's silver because of the abyss in T2. I think literally that yeah. this is what I'm saying. I think like he's like I want to do this oh, and I'm see. cool. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to me otherwise. It could have been anything. It could have been it could have been anything. Um I don't understand why it would do that. It was the key thing is that it is it is completely but it's right. like formless, right? It's this it's this piece of Play-Doh that is waiting to be turned into something that Right. I I get that. Real. I just think it it would have been better as Play-Doh than as <laughs> as Mercury. Yeah. But um but in any case I also struggled with the with the uh, pantomime with the, with the, with the mirror act, which is obviously a, is a time old movie trope, you know. Um, Frankenstein, you know, all, all of this is in there, which is great, you know. Uh, but that mirror thing acted on its own. I try, I tried to do the math. For example, when she gets essentially choked out against the door, she's pushing off the door. He's he it rather I should say is if it was also pushing off the door, she wouldn't get smothered. Right. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. So I'm okay in its alienness that it need, knows it needs to dominate her, but it, it broke me out of it. You said it's funny you said 30 seconds. It, it, if you had to ask me, I would say it was five minutes. Long. Yeah. I disliked it that much. Oh, I see. I could have done with five <laughs> minutes of that because oh. I thought I thought that was in a movie that I found lacking only insofar as it's kind of disinterest in exploring like individual differentiation, like what makes these people unique before it begins to blend them. I thought this was like the most vulnerable that that character gets, the most expressive she gets the entire movie. We talk about the sexless sex sequence, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's the perfect, the exact opposite of what we see here where she's just kind of, you know, grinding against another body. Here oh, she's like, she's doing everything in her power to, um, to exert like, you know, it's the, the fight or flight, but it's the most like human element in her to try to preserve that humanity. That's interesting. But instead, what she does, and I mean, how beautifully parallels with what we see happens to Oscar Isaac's character there, is a an ultimate relent to recognize that she cannot overpower this. And perhaps the only way to continue to survive, which is maybe the lesson of like, I don't know, evolution, is that, you know, you the you take you kind of merge you take on the characteristics that are successful in a particular environment and then you hope that even though you're less you after you leave at least you're still around annihilation is but i is think metamorphosis is but annihilation of he chose isaac's 
she, Isaac's character, who, by the way, we have to take a minute to say, is one of my favorite actors working. Sure. I, doesn't have too much to do he in does this not, movie, but, but I love everything he does. Yeah, I'd watch him read a phone great. book. Yeah. I love him. Yeah. But, um, you know, the choice of saying, and you see it on video, you're me now, go be me, is, is annihilation. You know, he's, he has to completely give up himself to to survive to to continue um i don't know entirely that she does that right she's altered but she doesn't the great unanswerable question about this movie so i think we have an answer okay in the finale if you're we we don't need to leave it i i just want to say the the um the mirror scene the transformation scene um i don't know how a being who knew nothing about I mean, this is just, this is probably too small, but like, you know, would you backhand someone across the face if you didn't know what anything was? How do we know that that thing doesn't just put a, turn into a spike like T2 and, or chop her head off or, or jump up and down, you know? So there was a, a violence in there that for me worked as an alien movie in a body snatchers kind of way, more than a benevolent. Uh, force of nature kind sure. of way. I mean, this is much more, again, talk about movie tropes as old as time, meaning as old as beginning of movies, uh, that of the doppelganger, right? This right. thing, I think, is less a uh, completely kind of pristine, untouched, unfamiliar thing as much as it is, uh, you know, a reflection of what Natalie Portman's character is unwilling to recognize in mm. herself. It's not, again, it's not, I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't argue that uh, to the detail because I don't think this movie it's is too concerned with getting every detail right but the impression I'm left with is that she wrestles with a certain thing herself, something more violent and unfamiliar, terrifying, and she loses. Mm, interesting. Are we... But you're saying, but uh, the final sequence, are you talking about... I'm ready to go final sequence sure. with you. So, I mean, I could talk about this for hours. But. Yeah. Uh, I should say that this, you know, you don't really need to know this, but this movie has a, a framing structure where it's, we have, you know, we know that Natalie Portman's character has emerged, you know, has come out of the shimmer from the very opening scene. Um, she is being interrogated by, uh, you know, some scientist who is decked out in, you know, his complete protective gear. Uh, who he has no idea. I which is love. great. I, yeah. Do you I know thought, that guy? I do, but I forget his name. He, uh, I think, uh, if I, I don't recall his name either. He's a character actor. He pops up and stuff. He's awesome. He's got a great voice. Um, looks and he's awesome. a, you know, he's a very kind of big, but kind of yeah. childish present. Like he's, so I, the, my favorite interpretation I've heard of the framing structure is that this movie uh, goes counter to many kind of current popular sci-fi movies that are all about unpacking puzzles to like perfect satisfaction of the audiences. This guy is the audience surrogate where he's constantly asking what happened? Right. What happened? Oh, this happened. This is what happened. Yeah. And Natalie Portman's character's like, I, I also I mean, love I that they chose a guy who speaks there. accented English, an ethnic <laughs> right. person who speaks yeah. accented English to work on an army base. I mean, this isn't a person who who came here at five. This is a person who learned English as a second language, and it it it's, it feels like another sci-fi movie where it's a international team of scientists gotten together to solve a problem. Never been introduced, by the way. It's not part of the movie, but it had that cool vibe. It also had that Blade Runnery post national vibe where sure. people speak spanish and chinese and japanese and english all together or even people... arrival i'm not sure if you saw that but oh, another movie of to... like absolute no, international harmony to so, you know, ward off alien invaders arrivals all over this day. but um but so i must admit that very ending of this movie is not one of the sequences that most stuck with me so i'm interested to hear yeah if you could remind me what happens but also what's your take on it well um what happens is it's a reunion of sorts. It's a, there is a reunion um at, upon the destruction of the shimmer right oh right yeah which is apparently you can just burn it down which is silly and lazy but okay you can burn it down i guess if it's organic it can die right what's that if it bleeds it can die that uh uh oh a uh, predator um so uh anyways um so everything's fine she emerges from the bush um and her husband recovers okay so the spell is broken right and they are reunited but first of all we have to say they all get um infinity tattoos on their forearms based on genetic mutation don't ask for a better explanation than that although i feel like the move that's actually one of the more coherent mysteries for me is that really? you know it's it's a tattoo that a different character on the expedition has but so does her husband all oh, right yeah <laughs> 
it's we, when we were watching we were joking, wait does he have the exact same exact tattoo? same oh, it's like okay. um it's like in uh, robin Hood and tights it's like the sheriff not uh, the, the mole moving around his face it jumped from character to character i found it very distracting oh, see i, I thought don't... it worked if it was just between the two female no. characters but you're right oscar isaac's character does yeah he does it. have it too and um yeah whatever i mean whatever i don't care so get weird whatever you know doesn't have to resolve everything so this this um the ending to me was unsatisfying with one exception because it got silly and i liked it getting silly what you get is a werewolf eye glow. And if you've ever seen a werewolf movie, right? Everyone's cool. The hero escapes. You thought he got scratched, but he didn't get scratched. You thought she got bit by the vampire, but she didn't. And they zoom in on the embrace. They turn to direct the camera and their eyes glow. Yeah. We got an eye glow, <laughs> right? I mean, this is yeah. straight ahead werewolf trope. Yeah. I mean, Ex Machina doesn't end in too dissimilar way, but the the werewolf eye glow visual representation there is not a literal eye glow but mm. rather this very like long distorted shadow that is cast across this yes. otherwise like bustling plaza that, that indicates the um human figural but also very otherworldly presence of this thing out out in the world yeah i mean the end of that movie is like um sort of the end of three days the condor and end of the movie where a person gets lost sort of in a crowd you know and, and that's also a movie right. thing but this i really thought was silly and yeah. i liked it it was adorable in a, in a way that i adored it because he's like, hey, guys, this is a horror movie. Yeah. I'm doing a horror thing. And he really, I mean, that is really a horror thing. I mean, they might have, it is as corny as having someone say, don't go down to the basement. You know, or, right. And considering how, you know, this movie's indebtedness to other sci-fi movies. Right. It's, it seems like inappropriate, right. Kind of silly, but also there are a lot of silly elements to this movie, was, as, as we've talked about. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not a silly movie. But there are silly things yeah. in it, and I like that. Like, well, I'm that's, cool I mean, it. you know, we haven't really spoken. Maybe we'll do a little bit about genre, but I also want to talk about, you know, before we close, how the five main characters are all women. Talk about yeah. how that struck us. But, but yes, this is a movie very much working within a genre. Um, sci-fi and action, I think, are the two big ones for me. And yeah, what are the great things about, you know, working in maybe the this, this silliness of tropes of, you know, bears turning into people and stuff like that? is that you get to explore these very big questions about what makes a human, what are the boundaries of our own, like, you know, autonomy, while also providing incredibly entertaining fodder for, for yeah. viewers who are like, ah, you know, the, the jump scares that we're used to while also provoking further Yeah, no, I mean, I don't so, mean to discount the form. Like, there are silly sci-fi movies, you know, Battleship Troopers or Starship Troopers, Starship, sorry, Starship right. Troopers. You know, there, there are tonally sillier things. Um, uh, but... I, you know, I think it's just the director's hand. I just yeah. think he's like, again, like, you know, you like a Tarantino where you can take, you know, uh, you, silly things can happen, you know, um, that are because he wants them to because he likes movies. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Oscar Isaac's eyes glowing yellow in the last shot is only one thing. That is only one thing. The mystery, you know, I mean, it like I loved it. So, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. So, so the well, let's actually let's uh, let's do let's go to the women characters. Okay. I, um, so, there were they is, all women in the book? I'm sorry. Were they all women in the book? I don't know. I don't know either. Yeah. yeah. Um, be interested to know. But there is a line in this movie, I think, quite directed at the audience, as opposed to between characters, in which one character says, "You know, we're not five women going into the bush necessarily. We are five scientists. That's why we've been chosen." You know, someone postulates that perhaps the previous, you know, expeditioners who have gone in haven't come out because of, uh, you know, something specific to male behavior. And I think that, you know, they see some horrifying things, especially the Oscar Isaac kind of carving Mm -hmm. up one of his uh, colleagues that seems like a sadism that may be specific to to masculinity. But, you know, a character does kind of brush it off and say, we're scientists, we're not not just women. I don't know if this movie has anything particularly if it's really interested in commenting upon gender politics in a way that ex machina is so wrapped up right. in the sexual like warfare between you know this man who has literally created this pleasure you know vehicle that rebels against that identity that has been given to her like that that movie is so wrapped up in sexual attraction and sexual identity here these characters i don't know am i too naive to take the movie at its word that it's more about these people being competent scientists than about their no, gender? No, I mean, I don't... Well, first of all, you know, the it, explicitly, Ex Machina is, is a Turing test. This, which is, you know, prove to me you're a person, right? right. Um, 
this movie's proved to me you're not, or rather that one has proved to me you're not a machine. This one has proved to me you're not a, you are a person, which they fail at ultimately, mm -hmm. right? Proved to me you're not fungus, you know? And as they disintegrate in this movie, they are fungus. You know, prove to me you're not a plant, Tom, you know? Um, as you've got leaves growing out, but you've got leaves growing at you. You know, it's like that, that great joke that um, Annie Hall opens with about the uncle who's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And the doctor says, you know, why don't you take him to the doctor? Because we need the eggs. You know, it's, it's absurdist. It, there is an absurdism to it, to one of the characters finding peace as leaves are growing out. But as far as the, all the, I'm happy to see all the women, all the characters be women. Um, I don't feel like the movie lacked anything for it. I don't feel like they, with the exception of the sex, the sex scene, which I think was handled well, um, they don't address any specifically female and or gendered um, biological issues, right? Right, which is fine with me, um, you know. And I think that you know, right now, probably the most important and thought about movie, you know, not commenting upon its quality, but the most important kind of pop cultural item right now is Black Panther, um, you know, this action blockbuster that is so wrapped up in, not using this in a pejorative way, but in the identity politics of being black, being African and African-American, you know, what specific kind of background, legacy, uh, kind of current uh, state and then future uh, to that um, to that community, how does that manifest itself in an otherwise, you know, familiar, you know, Marvel, uh, Marvel-tastic blockbuster this movie um, does not seem to be in that mold of of taking the familiar action blockbuster and you know the way that the Ghostbusters did, uh, right. you know the remake of Ghostbusters right. and trying to make it this explicitly female. I don't know if that's because it, the writer director is is male. I, I mean, I but I, it it does not seem to be as much of an identity politics issue as a, in, as it is like human identity. In I mean, for Black Panther, in context, it it is absolutely that. Without context, it's not. I mean, we don't need at this point at our our development as a culture to have white monks, white kung fu monks, right? We don't need iron fists. You know, all of the rich culture, thousands of years of culture of, of Chinese monks distilled into a blonde white guy to be the superhero. So for me to watch Black Panther, yeah, of course he's black. They're all black. That's where they are from. This is their culture. So while, yes, the, the film is a celebration of it, and they took you know, went to great pains to to enrich all kinds of different cultures. Um, that character, that makes perfect sense. In the same way, perhaps, that this movie doesn't need to be about sex and gender. You know, um, the difference is that they're not from Amazonia. Why are they all, why are there only women on the strip? They do not satisfactorily answer that question. Right. I mean, right, Wonder Woman, good example of a movie that exactly, is very right. much tied in with... Uh, right, I mean, what if, the, what if Wonder Woman was a man? Woman. What, if, right. what if they taught Chris, whichever right. Chris it was... Pine. Pine. What if they taught Chris Pine all their tricks? Then he went and said he became Iron Man. Right. You know, which I know I'm I'm, I'm mixing right. them all Those up. Those movies but, are you know reclaiming and subverting you know subverting expectations for uh, you know horrifically kind of lopsided kind of male dominated industry for however many this right yeah I mean I don't know that this movie doesn't need a satisfactory explanation for why they're all women but it's certainly I don't know a point of interest that that all all five characters are female I, I wonder if. You know, I wonder if a young woman, because I feel like so much of this current era of blockbusters embracing identities that have been, you know, so violently pushed to the margins for much of the history of movies, let alone society, um, is, you know, to show a next generation of viewers, you know, this could be you. You can recognize yourself in these right. characters on the screen. I wonder if any woman looking at this movie or any girl yeah. looking at this movie will say, ah, I could be the Natalie Portman character someday. Yeah, I, I don't really think this is that. Yeah. This isn't um, Ridley. Is that what I'm thinking of? Yeah, Ripley. Yeah. Who, Ripley, Ripley. Who, right, who is right. an incredible role model, but right. also a very fraught character. Right, but but this isn't this isn't that. I think um, I suspect this is just how it was written, and yeah. um, because it it does bear explaining why a military operation would have an entirely female expeditionary force. They didn't run out of men, and there aren't that many women. So it whatever. Right. Again, you know, it, it's not perfect, but sort of whatever. Uh, well. What I think is perfect is having you on the show, Bruce. Oh, <laughs> you're sweet. Thank you. Oh, it is, I, could, I feel like I could talk about this movie for some time. Um, and hopefully, uh, you listeners, if you have not, hopefully you've checked it out and are listening to this spoiler, uh, spoiler free, because you already know the spoilers. But Annihilation, you know, it's um, 
we're living through a good time in horror and sci-fi movies right now. Uh, I think that this is another example of a really interesting kind of artistically made genre piece that for some reason Paramount invested a lot of money in and then when we talk about its its distribution strategy, I guess internationally it sold the rights to Netflix so this movie won't be playing in theaters internationally uh, and it's really has downplayed the marketing campaign for it uh, domestically. But all to say, Annihilation, uh, get over the title and go check it out because it's a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting sci-fi movie that I think will provoke some conversation. Or get into the title. Or get into the or title. Or get into or the title and know come that... Come up with a satisfactory Yeah, or stitch it together like I did to make sense out of my universe. Bruce, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Tom. It's a pleasure as always. Uh, you can find over two and a half years of conversations about movies and New Haven at deepfocusradio.com and um, we'll catch up with you uh, next week for another show. Thanks.